Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Game of Thrones podcast. We're the officially unofficial podcast for Game of Thrones on HBO. Also, George Martin's new Targaryen history book, Fire and Blood, and continued to be the officially official place to discuss Gods of Thrones, our, our, our new book that's out. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Anthony. Speaking of uh, my, my other uh, co-author... And, uh, yeah, we're here to talk about the first section of the Fire and Blood book. And we read all the way up to the chapter Jaehaerys and Allison, their triumphs and tragedies. That's roughly the first third of the book. Next week, we're going to be covering all the way up to the dying of the dragons, Rhaenyra, triumphant. And then from there, we will be finishing the book. So Anthony and I have uh, done that, and we've written down some things that jumped out at us as uh, things that were important. Uh, are things that might be interesting to talk about, and we'll be getting to that in a moment, but I want to talk a little bit about Gods of Thrones business. Um, first of all, we've been setting our goal to get 50 reviews because we thought that was key to kind of our like you know marketing cornerstone. We'd get that early buzz going. It would help us out, and we just crested the 50 mark uh, early this week. And I wanted to read David's review. He was one of the ones. Uh, it's hard to say which one is the 50th review, but he was pretty close to it. Five-star review, bought it for the Clegamble artwork, he says, and what do you know? There's a book that goes along with it. In all seriousness, I really enjoyed Gods of Thrones. It's an interesting dive into the religions of Gods of Thrones, sorry, Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire world, and explains where the real-world inspiration that George R.R. Martin borrowed tenets and ideas for his religions from. While this may sound to you like a boring slog of a read, the authors inject lots of humor and pop culture references, as well as some interesting fan theories that have reared its head on these here internets. Also, kudos to Chase Stone for an amazing rendering of the Clegane Bowl. Uh, thank you for that very nice review, David. I'm glad you yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, I appreciate that. I also appreciated that David um, had the verified purchase category checked. Yes. I've, I've learned that verified purchase... Uh, reviews help our algorithm just just so much more. <laughs> they carry more um, weight. They do, yeah. Because Bezos knows that you've been naughty or nice. He knows that you've bought Gods of Thrones, and now you've taken the time to review it, and that's uh, that, that's that's all right by us. And uh, Chase Stone, our artist, definitely deserves a shout-out, and I appreciated that. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think it'd be interesting? Because I, I thought about asking him uh, if he wouldn't, you know, like if you give like a 10 or 15 minute interview about his art and his process and, and working on the book. Do you think that do you think people would be interested in that? I would. I would listen to that. I guess I he, guess I'm he, asking. He seems like a really talented, but also well-spoken fellow. Yeah, I, th- I was thinking about asking the, you know, see what the, the audience, the podcast audience uh, thinks of that. Um, and then I, I suppose I should ask him first before I, I, I get a get a campaign to bring him on the pod. Um, but, yeah, we, we appreciate that. Also, uh, people have been asking me this, this last week about when the paperback version is coming out. Um, and it's out. It's out. There's a link in every one of the show notes of this year podcast series that has a link to our Gods of Thrones book. And Amazon finally got them all merged together today. So, like the paperback and ebook now have the same landing page, and it's much easier to find. You know, if if you want whatever version, you just click on the other. If you're on the Kindle version and you want the paperback, you click other versions, and and voila. And also merged all our reviews together, which is nice. And the other thing I noticed because we we last week we did a Black Friday sale uh, through Digital Monday because you know that's what all the kids are doing nowadays. And Anthony, and I didn't didn't want to be left out. So we dropped the price of the book by 20%. And I noticed 
after I raised the price back up that it was actually less than we had discounted it. It's like almost 25% off. So I wrote Amazon like, you know, what, did I do something wrong? And I guess Amazon reserves the right to put your book on sale anytime they want. And the cool thing, so so they've selected our book for some kind of ad campaign, and I noticed that they're also like giving a there's there's a there's a buy it buy it together version where you can buy Gods of Thrones and Fire and Blood and get a discount. And then today, did you see this? Um, they they put us in with Fire and Blood, our book, and some book by Michelle Obama. <laughs> yeah, Michelle Obama's number number one bestseller, becoming is frequently bought together with Gods of Thrones and Fire and Blood. So yeah. on behalf of Michelle Obama, we thank you for the, yeah. that uh, that collective purchase. Yeah, and I, and I really liked her chapter about the rampant sexism of the maesters of Old Town <laughs> and uh, how, how uh, any decent queen wouldn't stand for that. Um, so she's definitely on hashtag Team Allison there. We'll we'll get to that here in a bit, but I just want to let everybody know that it's like it's. I don't know how long the sale will last, but it's the lowest price that you can you'll you'll ever be able to get it for the near future if you go and buy it right now because any any moment Jeff Jeff Bezos could change his mind and the price goes back up. So you can get it for twenty five percent off right now. That may change by the time it's airing, but uh, yeah, you you definitely should get it. You should definitely should get it. I think we are, it's time for us to just move on to our thoughts on fire and blood. I'd only read about 87 pages last week. Uh, I've now read up to like two, you know, two, 230 pages, the first third of it. I am actually surprised at how readable it is. I was kind of expecting it to be, you know, drier. And I guess a lot of the stuff that was with about Aegon, uh, the you know the conqueror was a little dry because I felt like I'm very familiar with that history. But when we start moving into the second and third generation of Targaryen kings, where you know you might have only had a couple of paragraphs here or there in, in different uh, Wikipedia articles or you know Wiki Vice and Fire articles, I started getting a little bit more engrossed. What did you, what did you think of this first uh, third? I was a little bit worried because I heard an interview with George recently where he said. Yeah, well, you know, of course he's making this up as he goes along, but he said, when I originally wrote down the reigns of these kings, some of them had, you know, remarkably short reigns, which means Mm -hmm. there's lots of fire and lots of blood, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. uprisings and usurpers and yada, yada, yada. But uh, so Jaharis, he reigns for 50 years Mm -hmm. and he's a pretty good king, which means... Mm -hmm. Oh, this is going to be, you know, peace is really boring, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh so what he said in the interview was so I decided I was going to have to sort of fill this out with you know, some some intrigue and and like uh, like we were talking about before, uh it gets really gossipy and there's some lurid sex rumors and um you know, there's there's lots of talk about wedding and weddings and who's not invited to the weddings. So mm-hmm. I was a little bit worried about it being a little bit too, um, eh, a little, little bit, a uh, uh, little bit too boring. But I, I mean, I'm engrossed. I'm, this is really fascinating stuff. And so, and sometimes you know, you go through a few pages and you're thinking, yeah, I don't really care about any of this. And then you yeah. get to that fourth page and you realize. Yeah, that's why I come. That's why I come to George for political intrigue. So yeah, I, I'm and, enjoying it. 
there there is a lot more political intrigue than I thought. Like you know, the first two years of Jaehaerys's reign, um, who's known as this like good old king uh, who re- reigned for fifty years, was already like packed because I thought. You know, it's it's funny because you say gossip. Like I, I do describe this book as surprisingly gossipy and and kind of bitchy in a, like a TMZ kind of way, where the yeah. maester will just like go on for pages about these rumors and well maybe it's this and maybe it's that and and I'll, I'll cite particulars uh, going forward. But but I thought that's kind of like you know some of it's a little eye rolly, but a lot of it was really interesting, especially. All well, it really makes Jaehaerys out to be very clever from a young age, navigating these uh, political waters, and you know, heading off rivals and winning them over as allies, and st- and and uh, cutting knees diplomatically out from underneath uh, some of the more extreme religious elements that might have uh, wished a Targaryen's harm and. It's I, I mean that's that's why I read Game of Thrones right and some of the fake politics here are just just really really uh, interesting. Uh, I did think that like there's a, a couple points that almost broke me like right around the uh, is it was it the golden wedding where the 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 hand of the king married the uh, old dowager queen uh, the the, yeah. the mother of uh, Jaehaerys and they talked about the guest list and it reminded me of back when I was reading the Bible. <laughs> and you get the numbers, and it's Sodom begat Gomorrah, who begat Bethlehem, who begat Bethshea, and it's just all these begats, 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 and it's like, oh my god, why do I need to read the birth records of these damn Israelis, you know? That is there like uh, like a page and a half of all the different people, the great lords and ladies who were in- invited, and whew. The other thing, it's very hard for me to keep a lot of these Targaryens separated, in my head. Yeah. Yeah. That's because true. they all have bizarre spellings of like, uh, like, like Allison can't just be spelled Allison. It's got to have an improbable amount of like Y's and N's shoved in there. And, uh, it's, it's, they're, they're all very, they're all very H and Y E. And those kind of like with me being a little dyslexic kind of run together. So, um, and, and they also like, my God, we're only, three generations of Targaryens, I think there's been 17 Aegons already. <laughs> right. And, and it makes so. sense. I mean, it's it's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, if, if there is a beloved uh, a character, whether that person is a, a great actor or, mm-hmm. you know, a great war hero, you know, you do. Like, you in, in certain mo- moments of history, you're going to see a ton of kids named after that person. Oh sure, I mean they got up the how many eight Henrys, right? So it's it's you know if if John is uh, and ends up being an Aegon, he'll he'll be the sixth one. It, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, it's just very hard. It's just very hard when you're trying to keep them all straight. Lots of uh, you know you also see other names like you know Joffrey pop up. There was someone on our forum saying that every time he sees the name Joffrey, like his he kind of his butt puckers up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> So far, all the Joffreys have been pretty stand-up dudes. Like yeah. I've, I've come across two of them, and they haven't been like major characters. But you know, they haven't they haven't murdered any babies or yeah. put any blood curses on anyone. Yeah, I would imagine before 1930, there was tons of Adolfs running around Germany, and and that was just a, it was a fine name. You could be named Adolf. Yeah. It was not a problem yeah. at that point. Yeah. Uh, re- just destroyed a fine uh, fine piece of facial hair too. Honestly. You know, I was, I, I was. What struck me was how 
important that link between the Targaryens and the Baratheons were. Oh, like right. Even yeah. From really from the very beginning, Hand of the King, and then you know you have the the, the older queen. Um, Mary a Baratheon and it's, they're they're just really tight. It's it's a really important alliance, even from the early days, and it kind of sheds new light on the the usurper and the Robert's Rebellion and whatnot in in the novels. Yeah, no, I remember like it's always been said that the Baratheons were kind of like distant relations to the Targaryens and you know the Robert had the best claim to the throne because his great aunt I think was a Targaryen, right. but they reveal in this book that the the first kind of of this the Oris uh, Baratheon was the bastard half-brother of Aegon the Conqueror. Not only were they right. best friends, but they were half-brothers too, so they have a very real uh blood relation. Uh, as well, so um, I thought that was is interesting that that George kind of made that official, official, uh, officially official. Anyway, um, so I guess I guess we can just kind of trade interesting points if we want. Um, that was one, so I'll go next. Uh, I thought it was interesting because they you can tell that that George really wants to make Megor a bad guy. You know, he's called the Cruel, and. Every anytime that George wants to bang a point, he always goes in my mind for too much. Like there's two separate instances of Megor conducting a half a year's worth of trials and executions uh, over these various rebellions and holy wars. And it's funny because he never he never indulges because you also can tell that George really really wants to talk more about the torture uh, and stuff. But he you know the the Septon is is strangely squeamish sometimes and strangely not squeamish other times but that you know that made sure that that Megor like you know he, he even though there's other important things to do in the realm he stayed for all six months of 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 mock trials and executing these people in ever more creative ways um like you know this guy ruled for six years he spent one sixth of it torturing and executing people right. so that was really interesting I thought um and also just to kind of frame him as the Antichrist uh, of the Targaryens so far, Megor, uh, who is the you know one of the sons of, of Aegon. If, if the, just for people who haven't read the book yet, Megor was the younger brother of that the Anus guy that we're talking about, or Anis, uh, Anis, as the, no, the audio book says gotta, it. It's got to be Anus, man. That's that's <laughs> his name. That's He's the younger his, brother. From of now Anus. on, that's his name. But but he supplanted uh, Anus for obvious reasons. You can't you can't be taken seriously with a name like that. Um, oh. And uh, he took over the guy. But but his reign lasted exactly six years and sixty six days. Which right. So we've got really I pricks to Judeo Christian Europe. Shades here of Nero or Caligula. Uh, you know, one of these Roman um, tyrants that are really hated by the the common folk. And kind of mm-hmm. known for their, mm, you know, their extremely, you know, ex- ex- extreme behavior. In this case, extreme violence. Mm-hmm. And um, famously, the uh, you know the Book of Revelation in the New Testament is written as political propaganda, uh, and um, and probably probably as a protest against Nero. And I think that there's probably a, just a kind of a nod there to um, to Nero in that in that six 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 reference. 
I thought it was interesting because it's a naked uh, Mark of the Wild Beast reference, but he doesn't, uh, you know, the maester doesn't belabor the point. He's just, he's just citing historical fact. Uh, but they don't make it like, oh, that became the number six became right. a, f- a fated omen. I kind of was expecting that to kind of punctuate it, but it's just nope. It it lasted exactly six years and sixty six days. Right, 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 right. And of course, we this is a universe that, of course, famously, a seven is is an, is an important number, just like the the kind of the biblical narrative as well. So yeah, he so yeah, said so we fa- have a little sh- bit of numerology that that George likes to play with. Yeah, but it's like it's he left on the table because he like the maester could have just observed that you know his reign fell short of the you know divine mark of perfection of set you know it's like seven years and seventy seven days right. would be the the best. Let's back to you. Let's see what you thought it was interesting. I was really interested in learning a little bit about the doctrine of the seven uh, because I had to note in in our in our chapter in chapter four in volume one of gods of thrones which deals with the faith of the seven mm-hmm. that we we learn a lot about how it's we learn a lot about the religion we you know i include like 45 facts because because uh, we learn a lot about sort of the practice but we don't know anything about the doctrine we know mm. that they've got this sacred text the seven pointed star mm-hmm. um, but other than the fact that they don't go in for incest. Uh, you know what do they, what do, what do these people believe? Like, why is it why is this important? Not to say that there aren't religions that are not as doctrinaire, but if this is based on medieval Catholicism, like George says, we would expect some points of doctrine. So mm-hmm. I was interested to find out that. Um, there was this this uh, this new doctrine promoted by help me out here. Who was the king that promoted this? Uh, was, this was the the one that uh, Jaharis. Jaharis. Yeah, yeah, Jaharis. So Jaharis, um, he he knows that he's not going to be accepted because he's married his sister. Because he just his and, father, who was Anus, one of the yes. one of the many political missteps he made, other than having the name of Anus, was marrying. Right. His sister, which they was kind of shocking that when the the faith turned against this, because apparently it's like you're like, well, you know, Aegon, whatever, and his dragons, but the, this weaker king, they weren't going to have it. That decision throws the kingdom into war again, and uh, so when Jaharis decides that he's going to marry, he's going to do it in secret because he he's he's young and he he's not ready to reveal it. But when he does reveal it, what he decides to do, uh, shrewdly, he he. He comes up with the uh, this group called the Seven Speakers, and what mm. these are supposed to do is these Seven Speakers are supposed to go throughout the land, and they're supposed to preach. And some of them are like you know miracle workers and healers and whatnot, but they're supposed to preach about um, about how great uh, the king and queen are, and and get the get the small folk on their side. Well, this turns into something called the doctrine of exceptionalism. And what this basically says is, hey, um, yeah, incest is is not supported by the gods, and no one in the seven kingdoms should go in for brothers and sisters getting married. But we know that Targaryens are different. And they, mm-hmm. they look different, and they ride dragons, and they, they are exceptional um, beings on the earth, and so that there are different laws that apply to them 
the ruling class. And one of the exceptions to the, the rules that we find in the seven-pointed star is that um, is that Targaryens can marry brother and sister. So finally, we have this doctrine, uh, you know, ex- explicitly, you know, drawn out, and we've got like disputes about it. You know, we've got we've got this uh, argument between uh, two folks, and one of them says, uh, one of them asks the Septon, "Well, so can I go and and uh, marry my sister?" And the Septon re- replies. Uh, yeah, sure. Go tame a dragon and fly it around, and I will myself marry you and your sister. Right. And there's a, he, he also had the line of argument that, like, look, one the the one god, the seven seven unified gods made us all, Andals and Valerians and First Man, but they didn't make us all the same. He made the lion and right. the aurochs, too, but it's not fair to make the lion live by the aurochs rules and the aurochs live by the lion. It's not fair to either of them. So... Targaryens are kind of like that. They're the lion, and they're the oryx, and they can be trusted mm-hmm. with incest, and we can't. It's it's actually, I thought, a fairly you know clever argument as far as these okay. things go. Okay, so two, two thoughts on this. One hmm. is that this is kind of how doctrines emerge. We, we yeah. have doctrines. Like, why do Christians, why are Christians so um, invested in the idea that Jesus is cohesive? co-equal with god you got me anthony well, because as a jehovah's witness i was always uh arian heretic right uh, of course and, and rejected yeah, well, the that... divinity of the christ <laughs> <laughs> right so so uh, aside aside from uh from the heretics uh a lot of christians uh, most christians are really committed to this idea that jesus is co-equal with god well why is that mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. because there was this massive controversy in uh, the, the the third and fourth century, about whether or not now now this is this is like splitting hairs, but whether or not Jesus was uh, equal with God after he was created, or whether he was present with God before creation, and mm. that was the major dispute. And that man, a lot a lot of arguments, a lot of people were um, exiled and. Uh, killed over that particular issue. And, of course, that's how the doctrine emerges. Now, Christians, long before that, even in the even in the early, uh, early uh, I should say, mid-first century, believed that Jesus was divine in some sense. Mm. But it was very open to dispute about what actually that means. And it wasn't until, uh, until these later disputes that we actually get this sort of definitive doctrine. And I think George plays this up really well. And the other thing I was interested in to ask you about, Aaron, because mm-hmm. you're Mr. Libertine. <laughs> so one of my favorite movies is The Royal Tenenbaums. Okay. And in this movie, you have this really dysfunctional but really hilarious family and if I, I don't want to spoil this for any for anyone, but at one point, because uh, if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should. It's it's a wonderful movie. It's also but over fifteen year old movie, so it is. On, you're you, right. You're right. Chop. So so basically, uh, it turns out that this adopted sister and her brother are attracted to one another, and the father says that that's illegal, and the son says, "Well, we're not related by blood." And then Royal Tenenbaum says, it's still frowned upon, though, right? 
So, <laughs> so right. uh, even even at that moment, I was feeling like, ooh, this is a little icky. <laughs> I mean, even if they're even if a brother and sister are related only by adoption, it feels gross to me. Right. But I so here's my question: When do you think we're going to see the first brother and sister uh, marriage? As a result of George's influence, massive influence on Western culture. Uh, boy, I mean, I hope that's I hope that's a bright white line we don't cross. Because why? Tell me why. I'm curious okay. to know why. I mean, it's honestly, it's 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 all it's it's. Uh, I I mean, I, we're talking about literal brother and sister, flesh and blood brother and sister. I mean, it just seems like that's. I'm uh, talking the, Targaryen, Targaryen brother and sister. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just think that, uh, I, I, I think there's a good sound biological reason to outlaw brothers and sisters getting married. And that is, there's lots of evidence that, that inbreeding leads to bad outcomes for the children. So it, yeah. it'd almost be like a, like a case of child abuse, like, you know, preemptive child abuse, um, yeah. or neglect. I agree. And I absolutely agree with you on this point. Go now, keep going. I will say that as a secular humanist, I find it very hard to say that like adoptive brothers and sisters couldn't marry each other because it's literally just a biological reason, uh, you know, that the the, the tab- tab- taboo against incest isn't just like a squeamish thing of humans. It's it's something that's like kind of in, innate to us, and also. The other thing is, I'd say it's weird, and depending, like, I would, I would ask that, like, did they? Did they get interested in each other late in life? Because there's also a biological thing that says that if you are um, socialized with people from like the age of three and under, that kind of inoculates you from finding them sexually attractive. Um, and it works in any direction. Like if, if I'm a 12 year old ch- uh, a boy and there's a newborn baby infant in the family, um, and then she grows up to be a beautiful woman. I won't see that and be sexually attracted to it because I knew her as a child. And it's the same thing to kind of, and then it doesn't work in all cases, obviously, because there's all kinds of incest and, and, and terrible tales of abuse. Right. But it does right. seem like there's also like a, an evolutionary safeguard there that like, if you come up in the same nuclear family or even in the same kind of tribe, which used to be before, you know, cities and States used to be kind of like loose, loose couplings of very interrelated families that there's kind of an inborn that's bad. And we evolve that to keep us from, you know, inbreeding into, into disaster. So that's well, what I would say. Okay. All right. Well, I, I think, are you going to say, what if the brother and sister agree to be sterilized? Cause then I was I'm just like, going to well, say that I was th- just then, going to then say I'm, that. Just, I'm back. Well, that's gross, but <laughs> see, that's my issue. All right. So let's say, <laughs> Let's say um, <clears throat> that that I want to sort of fall back on the – this is ev- ev- evolutionary or biologically this is dangerous. Yeah, it's a it's a bad idea uh, beyond it's just It's a bad idea. Okay, yeah. right. But if I'm going to be honest with you, that's not why I don't like it. I don't like it because it makes me feel icky because – You're evolutionary imperative. If, <laughs> if, if I – let's say if the brother and sister say – Okay, well, we don't plan to have children. There's no reason to have children. We're we're not going to have children. So, do you still do you still oppose this? Do you still uphold the taboo? 
I'm going to say, yeah, it still feels gross. I, I, mm-hmm. It's not. It, it's not just about the children thing. It just feels gross to me. And moreover, I and I'm not arguing for this. I'm just having a hypothetical conversation. But um, I used to feel icky about about same sex marriage, and I no longer do. But but that should teach me. I think. See, I was about that. To come everything back. I feel icky about, everything yep. I feel icky about, is not a mandate for ethics. Yeah, no, I I share that sh- particular shame um, that, and it's like I was about to say that, like my forty two years on this planet have taught me to really be cautious about that reactionary streak when I think, oh, something gross, I shouldn't, I I don't understand it, it's weird, it's strange, like that's not yeah. a great reason to deny people the freedom to do whatever they want to do. Um, so, like I'm saying, like if I was, I guess. If I was president of the world and brothers and sisters that really loved each other and wanted to forego having children, I guess I would say that I can't think of a good reason why you can't. Because I think you know any kind of any kind of good good rule or governance should have a good reason. You can't it, you, you can't tell your subjects well just because just because I said and so yeah I I, I would I would have to. Yeah, well, but that's I, the thing. It's like I, I applaud you, Aaron. I applaud you for being consistent in in your libertine uh, <laughs> ideology. I uh, have to be honest. I still, I'm still not gonna. I just, I, I'm gonna be the fuddy duddy on this one. I've got well, no I, good reason besides the fact that it just makes me feel gross. Yeah, I don't like. Is this something I've, I've talked about in podcasts? Is we want to take a complete digression? Is I am a little uncomfortable with how much incest there's been in fiction of late, yeah. um, and how much I see that as kind of being like really fetishized online because you know it's one of those things where it it does like you know practically in the real world incest is almost always bad. It's almost always a form of abuse, and honestly, I don't know if we need to give all the randy uncles and stepfathers and weird, weird, weird aunts in the world any 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 fuel for that fire. Because, and I'm like, it's 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 also weird. It's like maybe this is because the society itself has become more libertine, as you say. But like, it just feels like it's everywhere now. Like every damn HBO show comes out involves some kind of. You know, incest plotline. Uh, like it's like almost a requ- it's it's almost like a bingo checklist that you're doing for <laughs> for prestige dramas nowadays. And I don't know. I do think that I do think that I do think that that uh, George is kind of all about it, though. <laughs> well, it's all over the place with George's. Um... Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's also all throughout history too, right? So it's hard to say right, that he's you know yeah, that that's that's one of the things that we talk about in in volume two coming in April. Mm-hmm. Um, that this isn't just part of George's sort of sick imagination. Right. This is part of human history. We we, we have royalty like the Keeping Egyptians. Pure. That's right. And uh, the, and and not only that, but there was a lot of gods that were believed to marry brother to sister. Right. Of course, these gods were not paragons of virtue. Uh, right. In all cases, so. Um, but here's the other thing I thought was interesting about the the seven speakers, is that I think that there may be an echo here to the founding of the Church of England. Hmm. So, so in, in the 1500s, we're looking at the Re- Reformation happening, and that happens for a number of reasons. But at about the same time, Hen- Henry VIII is king in England, 
And this is a very long, complicated story, but one very popular sort of summary of the story is that Henry VIII wants to divorce Catherine because she's not giving him an heir. He wants to marry Anne Boleyn. And uh, and prior to this problem in his life, he's re- he's dead set against the Reformation. Uh, he he's condemning Martin Luther's um, uh, r- protests in Germany. Mm-hmm. But he realizes if I want to divorce my wife, the the papal so authority is not going to let me nice. do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so he ends up embracing um not just embracing sort of the tenets of the, of the of the reformation. He he sets himself up as the head of the church in England. Mm. Um <clears throat> now this is interesting to me because you have this this key uh religious shift happening around the Tudor period. And we know that George is really interested in the Tudor period. And sort of parallel to this, we can see at some point in Westerosi history, there was this key shift in doctrine, the the doctrine of exceptionalism, that is basically basically motivated by Jaharis's desire to change the the, the ethics related to marriage in, in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually thought I almost said that, but then I'm like, ah, I'm gonna go because I I thought that yeah, the the Henry the Eighth example was a was a much more direct comparison to this Targaryen exceptionalism that like this is official church doctrine that's being changed, yeah. not because the gods whispered in any any pontiff's ear or any septon's ear, but because the political will really, really, really wanted it. And I even wrote that I, I highlight this one pa- the passage kind of illustrate the politics of selecting this high septon that, uh, you know, King Jaehaerys and his wife, uh, Allison rode their dragons out to old town to kind of like preside over the selection of the new high septon because they knew it's absolutely crucial to to get one that would be amenable to a- accepting this doctrine mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people are like well, what are you throwing your dragon weight around they're like oh no no we're just we're just remaining in old town to get the new septon's blessing yeah yeah that's the ticket that's the ticket we just want the new septon's blessing and as soon as this new septon is and we'll we'll high, hightail it out of here we're not we're not throwing our dragon muscle around and just how deaf and they, there's this passage where it's like the lords considered, the maesters nodded approvingly, and the septons pondered or thought or thought about dragons. You know, kind of like the, sh- the, the cement. And to me, it's like a lot of this first third, I thought it's interesting to see how nakedly political and secular and vulgar it all is. And I'm like, wow, George is really, is really kind of putting his thumb on the scales of the faith of the sevens, a bunch of crap. But right. there's also yeah. like... You, and I'm like, how almost to the point where like, how can the faithful just roll with these punches? But then he's very clever, and that the kings that thumb their nose at the seven in various ways tend to have bad things happen to them. And you could argue from a medieval standpoint <laughs> that there is a little cause and effect here. That like the the father's not gonna like gonna gonna smote the realm with fire, but he might make sure all your children die. And he might make sure he might might make your dragon get a weird hitch and and throw you in battle or something. And and I I wonder if there's a little bit of that, you know, like that 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 that, that 
that it seems like so manifestly fake, but then you get another month, a couple months ahead of the story, and then bad things are happening to these people. Yeah, it's kind of like, did Melisandre uh, basically... Uh, how how responsible was Melisandre for the death of of the people that she claimed to? to oh yeah, the, the to other kill? our Serper kings, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like very I think George will 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 sort of put that in sort of very murky light. Yeah. So that you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I could see how she might have influenced that, or it could just be this this odd Rube Goldberg device of causality that yeah maybe she was the the motivator maybe she wasn't you know yeah um there's something i want to talk about reyna targaryen who is the brother of jaharis and there was some because of the messy the messy rule of megor where he essentially usurped the throne from his brother and also i i highlighted and, and triple underline there's this passage he has early in the book where people are trying to t- talk to him about you know, lines of succession and how the law is clear. And Megor says the Iron Throne will go to the man who has the strength to seize it. And I'm going to remember that for because like people love to ask right. about who's got the strongest claim for the end of the Game of Thrones. And it's like <laughs> it's like, man, if you've watched this show to this point and don't realize that all that stuff is words and words are wind. And I don't know what to tell you because Aegon didn't have right to shit. He took it. Megor certainly didn't have right to shit. He took it. Jaehaerys yeah. had a divided claim between him and his sister, and they just kind of decided it because, well, Reg- Jaehaerys is the one on the throne, and he had one more dragon than her. And- well, and also Jaehaerys could have easily been dethroned if he yes. wasn't smart. I mean, he, right. he set up this situation where he knew that his father-in-law and mother were going to try to uh, separate him and his sister right and he just outsmarted them so right, so if right. you can you know if 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 you can have a political or or genealogical uh right of succession that's great but if you don't know how to make that work for you either by strength or by wit then you you're not going to keep it for very long right right um, and so, anyway, this Reyna Targaryen lives in kind of semi-exile on Dragonstone. So she takes her dragons and her children, and she she takes them to Dragonstone. And the book is very clear about how the dragons just got busy on Dragonstone. Like, all the eggs that hadn't hatched, that they brought there, had now suddenly hatched. Uh, there was baby, there's baby dragons being born all the time. Some dragons escaped and they were in the wild part of Dragonstone, like beyond the other side of the mountain and they were breeding like these dragons are just so prolific. And there's a parallel story here where Jaehaerys is finishing the last brick of the great dragon pits. And in fact, we, we close at, at this section of the book. Um, the first third of it with the dragon pit just being completed. And we know that once the Targaryens move, the dragons into the dragon pit that begins the decline of their line because up to this point the dragons are getting bigger and stronger like this line of dreamfire especially seems to be like primed to make these legendary dragons that give balerion the black dread a run for his money and then they all just kind of they they kind of go in decline and i'm i'm really curious because you know it's been a long held fan theory that the maesters kind of had a hand in the decline of the dragons because they were 
these things that just really upended the power balance in Westeros and convincing the Targaryens that they needed to have this big stable that was worthy of their steeds could have been the thing that, you know, undoes them. It seems like it might be made explicit in this book because why else have the story of the dragons being unusually prolific on Dragonstone and and breeding almost uncontrollably to the fact that they're getting loose and escaping and then they're brought to the 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 dragon pit and they 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 just start getting shrimpy and and stunted and right so i keep waiting to to see clues like that to think <clears throat> okay so is it true that the the dragons uh, diminishing captivity cuz that's kind of the the official narrative right mhm right um, the 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 counter narrative to that is to say that no, that's all par- propaganda. Someone was poisoning or doing doing something to kill off the dragons, right? And it, because, of course, the, you can, you know if you can denuclearize another country, then then you why not do it? Yeah, yeah, why not do it? So yeah, so I keep looking for clues to that. Now that was also, I think, the portion of the book where. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a reference to three lost dragon eggs. Yes. So the same Reyna Targaryen who's living in semi-exile has taken. I think if I'm reading between the lines, this this lady Elisa Farman was her lover. Yes. Um, no, that's that at right. All, at all accounts, a close associate, and she, you know, got tired of being cooped up on on Dragonstone the whole time, and she's uh, she wanted to go explore the sea. She's got a Moana complex and. Uh, she steals three of these unhatched eggs and makes off to Bravos, where she sells them to a Bravosi sea lord. So I think that the obvious connection that George wants us to draw is that these uh, these are the three eggs that eventually make their way into Illyrio's possession and given to Danny as gifts uh, that eventually become the three the three dragons in the novel. I guess the only question is is why is George like that's a that's a that's a mystery that I never really needed an explanation. Like it's like um he's really obsessed with balancing the the egg count here. Do you have any ideas about I, I have one well, kind of idea. Okay. All right. So I I saw this interview with John Hodgman and uh-huh. you can see it on YouTube. And John, it's 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 you know it's a lot of George's sort of greatest hits when he's interviewed, uh-huh. but what 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 Hodgman leads off with is he says, uh, "Look, late in the late in the book, um, uh, there's a reference to a, an elephant coming to Westeros, but we never hear of the elephant again, so it's really obscure." And what George says is, "Well, at one point in the books, I said that Balerion's uh, head was bigger than an elephant, and I thought." How would they know that unless an <laughs> elephant had once been to Westeros? Right. So I think that I think that in the same way that like uh, Better Call Saul is on occasion sort of dropping little origin stories yeah. for Breaking little Bad. Little just so stories, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's probably what's happening here is that uh, George is sort of winking to the people who might pick up on the clue. Well, I also think there might be a little bit of um, suggesting that Daenerys' dragons are going to be very, very famous. Like, the, like you, you should expect big things from these because these are from the brood of Dreamfire, which is, again, um, 
you know these this this large aggressive powerful targaryen dragon like you're supposed to understand that this is from like this is like secretariat's uh children like you should you should expect big things from okay. him, maybe that's the, that's that's the only other thing besides for him wanting to you know garden the hell out of this scenario it's maybe just you know a little bit of more street cred for Daenerys's kids i think so like and their I, mama look, was, if, was 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 a big famous dragon if these three eggs are not the eggs that danny ends up acquiring then i don't know what the purpose of them are yeah. i mean it's it's uh you know it's possible that this is just something we're making a big deal out of but it's pretty conspicuous i think yeah yeah um then there's another i that, uh, another point i liked is that uh Allison the queen Allison Jaharis's uh sister wife queen uh when she goes they go on these things called progressions which is that an actual like royal term like just kind of tour the 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 land or is this a uh a mayhaps so, kind of thing a george <laughs> a fuddy-duddy george term no pr- processions were really important in the ancient world especially after a great battle uh-huh. so so if you were going to be part of a royal pr- progression um you are going to Parade yourself into the city on the war horses, and you're going to have a, a litter of you know animals that you've acquired, and and slaves in chains behind the the the, the big procession, and um, and people will come out to meet you and and hail you as king. Uh, so whenever a king comes to town, sometimes you'll do that so that sort of you're proclaimed from far off, and the small folk can come out and. And uh, you know, wave their bras at you or whatever. So it's it's it is it is a way to um, it's a power play. I think it's it's a way to show the small folk that you this is not any normal arrival. This is a special dignitary sort of arrival. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of politics of that too because they talked about like Aegon used to do these progressions and it would like bankrupt the realm. Like he would go to some lord's house <laughs> with his thousand knights and his three dragons and his two wives and they said they would leave the 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 lord with his wine cellars emptied and half the serving girls with great lords bastards in their bellies, you know, like um like he it was like a real mess. Van Halen, did you ever Yeah, hear this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Van Halen so, would say, "Yep, I'm gonna come. I'm coming to town. I'm gonna screw your girlfriend, <laughs> and make sure there's no green M and M's in the bowl." Um, <laughs> but I thought it was also kind of like Jaharis was like wise about that. He's like, "You know, I'm gonna scale this on back, and also I'm gonna use these as kind of like whistle stop tours, so I can talk directly to the little people and see what their needs are." And he also, you know, like his queen was really progressive. She had these. Uh, what is it called? The the ladies' court or something, where she would encourage all the ladies and the small folk women to uh, come to her and tell them her problems. And she's passing a lot of legislation, like uh, right. you know that it's it's illegal to throw uh, a second wife out of the castle once the lord dies, because a lot of the children are doing that vindictively. And and also, mm-hmm. it's illegal to cut the first children of a lord out of the will once he marries a second wife and starts having kids with her like there's a whole bunch of like common sense like female friendly legislation that she's trying to pass through her husband which i thought was was kind of interesting um but uh you did i already mention this about because the whole reason i want to start with this is that allison when they were visiting uh the citadel she spent a lot of her time pestering the maesters like attending their lectures 
demanding oh, no, open access to the libraries. And, you know, she she said, you know, if I wasn't a queen, I might be a bang-up maester. Hey, why don't you let the girls come in and study? And if they're not clever enough, send them home, you know, like you do with all the dumb boys you have. Like, if it's, if it's a good... If you recognize that not all men are capable of being a maester, then... <laughs> Why not just open it up to win? And the the way that George wrote that is like the the maesters kind of like nodded and smiled and said they'd take yeah. their her her advice under consideration and w- wadded it up and filed it under you know file thirteen. You know it's kind of interesting in this sense because even even though the 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 faith of the seven is very patriarchal, they've got this sort of big council called the most devout. Mm. And these are kind of the big power brokers, and it does include the most the most devout will include septas as well as septons. Mm. So it is not unheard of to have sort of these important female leaders in Old Town. But uh, again, th- this is one of those times when uh, you know these are the exceptions and not the rule. In this case, academia is is more patriarchal than than the uh, the church. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's that also remind me of another point about the um, Jaharis's uh, seven. Like, uh, what would you call them? The 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 seven he the sent seven forth. Speakers, the, kind of, the seven speakers. The seven speakers is that three of them were a septon and two septas that were sent to Queen Allison specifically to talk her out of marrying her brother, like right, convince right, her about yeah. like and 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 what happened is they got converted to her because they saw how kind and wise and smart and and loving right. and and caring about the small folk they're like yeah we don't see a problem with her marrying her brother <laughs> so so it's right. like the opposite it, the opposite happened so and that was the same portion of the book where we get sort of our most lurid sidebar oh right 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 because in addition to these the these septas that are sent uh to convince uh her not to marry her brother uh, there's this. Oh gosh, what's her name? Do you remember her name? Corianne Wild. Yeah, of course. Last of name Wild. <laughs> so, so Miss Wild is the subject of this probably apocryphal book or legendary book, and it's 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 the, the subtitle is uh, you know a cautionary tale for young maidens or something like that. Yeah, it's ca- a cautionary a caution for young girls, but it's called like sins of the flesh, a wanton's right. tale. There's a it's been copied and copied, and it's semi pornographic by the time of like you right. know the Baratheon <laughs> and uh, Baylor the Blessed famously burned a bunch of these things, but right, the right. common folk still keep copies in the brothel because there's right. all these details of this uh, of, of what Miss Wilde did in her sort of misadventures. So, right. but the whole reason it's included is that um w- along with these septas that are sent to Dragonstone, there's this this Miss Wilde that goes with them and her job is to seduce uh, Jaharis and and to sort of show him the ways of the world. And maybe he will sort of uh, leave his sister behind and maybe be attracted to her or – Or piss her know. sister off, his sister off so she doesn't want him anymore because they catch him or in bed. She, like gets, supposed to... she gets pregnant and that creates yeah. a complication. Yeah. You know? so, so, but, of course, the maester then after this, what, I don't know, seven-page excursion 
Yes. Says, yeah, but these were all rumors and uh, we shouldn't take them seriously. And then none of it worked anyway. Like, even if all of it was true, that Jaharis either remained chaste or just like, you know, had sex with the girl and then still loved his, loved his, uh, his queen. Who cares? You know? Yeah. It's yeah, one of those so weird. This is- it, there's a lot of that. That's like I'm saying the gossipy TMZ stuff. Like, yeah, there was exactly. a passage where Megor took. Because Megor seemed like he was borderline barren or infertile. His swimmers didn't work right. So he took to bed three different queens that were all known to be able to have children, and they were called the Black Brides. And he married them all on the same day. And there's like a a page and a half where the maester is like, did they share all a bed? Did he visit them sequentially? Did they have one orgy? Was the king's garden involved? Were there goats present? Mayhaps we'll never know. And he just goes like, it's just like again a page and a half of him speculating on these nuptial arrangements with with Megor and the Black Brides, and it's like, man, George, you really, you really should uh, sell this anonymously on Amazon uh, because there's a market for that smut stuff, and I know you want to do it. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah, that's exactly it. He, he this is. This is, I think, this is George's sort of veiled commentary about, yeah, you, 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 you priests at the Catholic Church, you're preaching against this stuff, but we know what you're really interested in. I think, I think right. that there's kind of some veiled commentary in the repressed sexuality of the Catholic Church in this, right. Yeah, no. The more you try to, the more you try to repress those urges, the more they come out in other ways. Um, so not just, to say we are all, I mean, look, we're all, we're all, <laughs> we're all very carnal creatures. We all have our own little, uh, quirks and things we don't like to talk about in public. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the hypocrisy. Oh, that, that he's about is, to start preaching the... Ladon exceptionalism. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not, I wasn't the one that suggested that it would be okay to marry brothers and sisters, Aaron. Hey, that's because I'm not trying to repress that urge. It's not going to, you're not going to catch me fucking my sister, Anthony. <laughs> so, um, we, I, I, the only other point, and this is kind of like the exclamation point at the end of this section is that princess Art, uh, and her name is, it's spelled like, area but i think it's going to be pronounced if i got the targaryen pronunciation guide it's going to be pronounced aria and she's this very headstrong willful child of uh reina targaryen and she when she's like 12 or 13 gets tired of being cooped up because at this point it's just her and reina in dragonstone because reina's pissed off her husband and he's poisoned all of her attendants and then her one lover ran off with her dragon eggs and uh, Arya is just 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 cooped up here, and she impetuously steals Balerion the Black Dread. Not any of the hatchlings that were on offer. She went to the biggest like like Balerion at this point is ancient and old. He's like nearing three hundred years old, and they mentioned that like he sleeps most of the time, but he's also just this huge mythical thing. When you rouse him, he's still terrifying to behold. And this this thirteen year old girl jumps on his back and disappears. And that's kind of like where we're heading into the next section, which I thought it's interesting because, like, you know, it's it, it sounds very much like our Arya, you know? Yeah. It says that she's never ridden a dragon before. So she she's not she, – she's good with horses, but she gets pissed off and she just wants to she, – she just wants to storm out. And yeah. she she mounts Balerion – and she uh, she she isn't seen for years and years. And we won't spoil the next section, but I will say this. 
that what happens to her is pretty crazy and pretty interesting and probably one of the most interesting passages of of this particular of this the book that I've read so far. Mhm. Um that's anything else we want to say or should we move on to feedback? Let's go to the feedback. Okay, feedback. Uh, you can send it into Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. There's also forum threads for these uh, Gods of Thrones bonus podcasts. Uh, first up, Janine S. says, uh, and there's many, many people send us uh, corrections on this. I'm going to read the two, mo- in, um, the, the, the first one and then the funniest one. It says, okay, I'm listening to the audible version of Fire and Blood, and it pronounces the unfortunate first son of Aegon, Aenys, not Anus. Says yours is hella funnier, funnier, but the poor guy has had enough trouble out there. I obviously, obviously. <laughs> um, says also so glad Anthony and I had the same idea about the initial section of pre-conquest Targaryen history, just pretty much straight copied from World of Ice and Fire. I started to give up at that point, but decided to read on and see if it indeed was a cotton cut and paste job. Happily, it doesn't appear to be so. The thing I'm noticing about the book is that it's giving some personality to the Targaryens, who I don't really much like in the series. It's also given us some big clues into the Baratheon ties without boring us to death and getting us lost in all the YS names. Speaking of, I do want a better description of the dragons. Uh, Gurm needs to put out a definitive uh, pronunciation guide. For example, like we know King Aris is pronounced Aris, but then you have an R- the A-R-Y-S. Is that Aris? Um, and I, that's, that's one of my big complaints too, Janine, because I'm pretty terrible at pronunciation anyway. And a lot of these names just look like way too many vowels and way too many Y's and (laughs) they all kind of run, they all kind of run together. Well, Uh, all right, let's put it this way. If your name was anus, wouldn't you, uh, wouldn't you tell everyone it's pronounced anus? Yeah. Put, put an, uh, put an umulet. Over, uh, 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 over that, uh, um, whatever YS thing, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. do something, put, put, a, put a, a di- diacletic mark or whatever they're called. Yeah. We'd put an umlaut. I think that we need a lot more umlauts in, in, uh, Targaryen names. That'll otherwise you, you just got a bigoth dicketh situation and it's, it's not good. <laughs> um, Moving on, Mark says, your conversation on the pod about uh, Anus was cracking me up. My wife is Egyptian, and her father, who is actually from Egypt, has a middle name of A-N-I-S, pronounced like you did at one point, Anis. His culture dictated that my wife and her siblings all have that middle name as well, and she hates it. She would tell stories about every substitute <laughs> teacher ever reading the wrong name column and asking if Anus was present. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i can relate because my last name my real last name is very german and it it is it rhymes with jerk off and <laughs> right around the fourth or fifth grade every boy in my class's eyes lit up and forever more i i was i was a jerk off so okay I so can, the, I, I, I never really had a problem with it's this, actually jerk but... jerk off to by the way if it's the correct <laughs> german pronunciation <laughs> I never really had a problem with this because you wouldn't know it unless you know Italian, but my last name is Ladon, which is Italian for the women. It's women plural. Huh. And so, yeah, so it's not it's not the most, you know, it, masculine. It, it, no, as a kid growing up, you know, you're you're struggling to 
figure out what it means to be masculine. Sure. It's yeah. not, it doesn't really help if, if be you called come An- from Anthony a, the woman or the women. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, see, it's see, not you can take it as You could take it as descriptive or you could also take it as like your legend. Like, you know, you're An- Anthony of the women. <laughs> the, uh-huh. the notches on his belt. There's, he had to have three belts because there just weren't enough notches. No, no, no. It was. It, I, I'm. I'm sure of it. I've. I visited the village where the Ladons come from. Uh-huh. I'm sure that it's just all of these really strong women who have sort of defined the family, and uh, as it so happens, that that is the case with my family too. Um, but yeah, not not as bad as jerk off or anus or, a- <laughs> or anus. pour pour one out for all the anuses present. Uh, Michael S. I've been really enjoying your podcast on Religions of Game of Thrones and Review of Fire and Blood. Well, thank you, Michael. I can't help but read this book and envision an HBO dark comedy about Megor Tar- Targaryen. Basically, he just murders everyone who disagrees with him and makes fun of him, and everyone makes fun of him behind his back. What do you think? Um, yeah, there's a lot of, in Megor's chapters, a lot of, like, dark humor that's very similar to, like, Metalocalypse. If you ever watched that, um, Comic, uh, what was that? The Cartoon Network Adult Swim series, where it's just everything is brutal and metal, and it's just just like again, these this guys spend six months uh, executing and torturing uh, you know people that be, be, be betrayed him, and uh, he is a he is a tragically comic fellow if he wasn't so damn some so, so much of a bastard. Well, let me ask you this: uh, so we've read a third of the book. Uh, and we know that HBO is going to do these prequel series. Mm-hmm. Which character in the book so far is intriguing enough to you that you would actually like to see a spinoff series? Honestly, early on, like I'm really digging Jaharis. Like he yeah. is by far the biggest heroic figure. He has the most internal dialogue. He has the most actual actual dialogue. He seems like a good leader by almost modern day like Aegon it's so funny how Aegon was treated as like an arm's length removed by this maester um mm-hmm. like you know he's this elemental force and he's you know just and wise and handsome and a fierce warrior and brooding and but he's kind of like Batman you know uh it's it's hard to <laughs> kind of get a handle right. on him whereas Jaehaerys right. I found very uh, I mean he's very clever he's like uh he he's like um you know, Aegon with the mind of a, Tyr- a Tyrion. Right. Uh, he's yeah, he's I, very I like clever and funny. You know what I think would work because <clears throat> there's just so much about Old Town we don't know about mm-hmm. from from the novels and from the series. If you wanted to do a series about, like, I don't know, something about the maesters in Old Town. Yeah. Uh, and and sort of th- these maesters navigating these new Targaryens in Westeros or something, you wouldn't have to rigidly follow any, any sort of narrative that, that George has come up with because you would have a little bit more freedom on discussing the politics of Old Town as compared to the politics of King's Landing at this point. Yeah. I also thought it'd be, when you said that, like, um, a sillier version of that would be like re envisioning the Maesters as like um, this like Kingsman secret order, you know, that they're actually like they're like the J- they're the double O sixes of the kingdom and they're poisoning people that need to be poisoned. They're murdering dragons and maybe like I was thinking, oh, maybe the Faceless Men is their equivalent in, in Bravos. Like, you know, right, they're really right. the power behind the power, but 
Um, they're just less showy about how they flex it. I thought that would be kind of cool. Um, so I saw that uh, Naomi Watts has been cast yeah, for one she's of like the, the principal. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting sort, of, and I haven't heard of any other names. Have you? Uh uh-uh, no. And I don't. They don't even really. I don't even really know what she. I mean, I like Naomi Watts. I think she's a really incredible yeah. uh, actor. Um, I I one of my favorite movies of all time is I Heart Huckabees, and she's just wonderful in that movie. Um, right. So like, I'm I'm intrigued. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know what they're gonna do with her. Like, I kind of like I just because of where she is in her uh her her life like i i kind of want to cast her in like a cersei role you know um right right as right, a right. Like, like maybe a fading a fading beauty that's like cunning or has a lot of leaders maybe she's like the anti cersei in that way but uh i have i have no idea i have no idea but it's kind of cool well you don't they're... cast you wouldn't cast her and have her be the first major announcement unless yeah. She's going to be in some key role, right? No, she's like honestly, like that's like this is very similar to like Sean Bean being announced. Like he right. was the anchor of the first season. Of course, you know we all know what happened to the poor Sean. Um, <laughs> right, right. But yeah, no, I I'm I'm excited to see what ends up happening with that. All right, last one. Uh, Danny uh, wanted to touch on some feedback of last week on the uh, at the end of the podcast. Uh, the heathenist Russell says, "I'm a religious teacher myself, and I'm a pious or is it pious or pious, Anthony?" Pious. Pious. Okay. I'm a religious leader myself, and I'm a pious man, but believe it or not, I still love pop culture, and I take great joy with those, both of those things in my life. I think the gentleman's feedback last week hit the nail on the head. Belief should not be a two-dimensional topic, non-believers and believers, but rather viewed as in the widest lens possible. I like to look at it as such. Believers seek answers and guidance that will give them a higher purpose in order to then seek a solution to the reality that then pushes them into actions, where non-believers, on the other hand, are content in their reality. They're happy with the understanding that they already have. Both are fantastic if one feels happy and that they belong, which is why I think Russell's feedback is great, because it demonstrates that no matter where you are or who you are, religion, no religion, different religions, it's all shapes of our word world. Your podcast and your book doesn't just hit the nail on the head with this, but smashes it through the plank and out the other side. So I say thank you for that. It's also good to see educated and quality feedback. It speaks volumes of the type of podcast you have going there. High praise. High praise, Danny. Uh, for the record, heathenry is a new religious movement, also known as Asatru or Odinism. It follows the belief generally in the gods of the Norse pantheon, very community-based with a strong focus on family and honoring your ancestors and spirits done through or done so through blots. They have strong ideals on fate. Some groups are more radical than others, but it's generally a very interesting and noble practice. Uh, United States military just included it on its list for religious identification. That's interesting. Yeah, um, that is interesting. Yeah, and it's funny because like I remember um, my old co-host Mad Brew. We got in a talk about religion in the military because when he was going through the Marines, he was an atheist, and the uh, the United States military actually has a separate icon for atheist religious affiliation, and you can actually get that. There's it's like a little A with an ato- like an atomic symbol around it. Uh, you can have that put on your cross at Arlington if you want. But he he talked about how much pressure he had from the chaplain to put anything other than atheist. And he had to kind of like t- you know he 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 had to kind of like buck the chain of command to 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 stand stand by his principle there. I will say that as as a representative non believer, I I I I don't say that I'm content in my understanding. Uh, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> I definitely want to understand more, and I'm always like seeking for for different meanings. It's I, I guess it's more of like 
I feel like my accurate description of my emotional state is I'm content with the uncertainty. It's, and, it's really interesting, and I think that we may be foreshadowing our, our, our religion discussion because I think that uncertainty is kind of what keeps me within the fold of Christianity. So I, you and I have a lot of similarities, even though we've, we've landed it in uh, different spots. Yeah, it's just I'm staunchly no sister fucking, and I can tell there's a little wiggle there with you. There's there's a little flex. There's a little flex. We're gonna have to talk about Anthony. Uh, I I see that I see how you spun this on me, but you you are on the record, sir. Can I? Should I have the court reporter read back the, the transcript? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll, let, I'll let that be an exercise for the listeners. That is the feedback we have for this week. And if you want to send us more, you can do so at Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. You can also get on our forums, forums.baldmove.com. We have a, a Game of Thrones section there, and we have po- uh, the thread for each of these little bonus podcasts we're doing for Gods of Thrones and Fire and Blood. All right, next week we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be considering uh, from Jaehaerys and Alysanne their triumphs and tragedies all the way to the dying of the dragons, Rhaenyra Triumphant. If you'd like to participate in that, uh, do so through the feedback we just talked about. If you've enjoyed this discussion of Game of Thrones by Anthony and I, please go out and buy our book. I think you'll really like it. It makes a great Christmas present. It's now on sale courtesy of Amazon. You can find a link to the paperback and the electronic version in the show notes that is on your podcast player right now or on the associated article at baldmove.com. Otherwise, we will see you again next week. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Anthony. I'll see you later. <laughs>